0: Five. Two.
1: Eight. Two.
2: Hello and welcome to this second episode of 5282. Why 5282? Well, if you are looking for a podcast about the D5282 British Rail Class 25 locomotive, you will have to look elsewhere for your vintage rail nerd fix. This is a podcast exploring popular and fringe culture, focusing on music, film, and television. We contend a golden age existed for three brief decades. But we are nothing if not contrarians, and so we'll discuss culture from any time and place that takes our fancy. In this second episode, we will be making yet more recommendations for your consuming pleasure, and discussing if the Beatles can be considered a folk band, and then the career of Michelangelo Antonioni, the Italian film and documentary maker who, from 1945, explored profound changes in European culture, thoughtfully considered the changing Perceptions and tensions between genders, and considered loneliness and isolation in the urban society. With me are filmmaker, photographer, and blogger Kevin Petch. Hi, Dave, are you okay? I'm not bad. Oh, good. All things considered. Ah. And cinephile, poet, and musician William Asbury. Hello, David. Hello, mate. I'm David Bain of the chair, and I own some recording equipment. Cram on with the uh, podcast. Oh,
0: it's wonderful to have you back. Well, we weren't sure whether or not we'd have you with us today.
2: We start every episode with no but Sherlock. Each of us will recommend a band, artist, or cultural artifact, which you may well have heard of, is most likely very famous, but you haven't got around to looking it up yet. Uh, so, Kevin. So I'd like to recommend a live album uh, by Black Country New
1: Road. Um, They're an art rock chamber pop alternative uh, band. Um, uh, The band's first two offerings uh, for the first time in in 2021 and Ants from up there in 2022, um, they were very, very well received. They featured uh, Isaac Wood on guitar and lead vocals. Sadly, Isaac left shortly afterwards, so the band regrouped, wrote new material and recorded a live album. They also made a film of the same name. I would like to be so bold as to put this live in-concert album up there with the likes of The Who's live leads and Lou Reed's Rock and Roll Animal. It is that good. Standout tracks include Upsong, Turbines stroke Pigs, and dancers I was lucky enough to see uh, Black Country New Road at the Irish Centre in Leeds and they were absolutely brilliant, they also wiped the slate clean and only performed their new material which is a good move really because all the uh, the singers they, they were just backing singers before so now they're actually up there which is brilliant uh, so yeah, I can't recommend this, this um, album highly enough
0: well, certainly you've got me interested there, Kevin, and I and I certainly like that idea that they just play totally new material. Even though in the past I've been to see acts and been disappointed when they don't play any of the older songs, but mm. I, 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 yeah, yeah, I, I think I'll have to check them out. They'll have to play me on burn me a
1: disc or whatever. Most definitely, yeah,
2: yeah. And uh, where do they hail from? Are they Cambridge? Ah, oh, marvelous. Yep, yeah. yeah. A lot come from there, isn't there? Like the Soft Boys. Mm. Mm.
1: Uh, um, with their name, you know, Black Country New Road, I was thinking they from Birmingham.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I, thought I was thinking,
0: yeah, I was thinking Black Country <coughs> Communion, which is that <laughs> a band with the uh, Joe Bonamassa and um, uh, the guy that was in Deep Purple playing bass of so sings. Yes, and uh, cool. and and obviously
2: Jason Bonham. And I was thinking Alabama. Yeah, 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 yeah. Of course, very, very good. OK, Bill, so you're going to cover... I'm going to cover Cannes, Cannes. David.
0: Yeah, I know, I know. I'm sure, I'm sure a lot of our listeners will be uh, very aware of Cannes, but uh, still, there's going to be people out there that don't don't know anything about them, or, or just know a very scant amount. Cannes are probably one of the most influential Ger- uh, German bands of the last 50 years. Uh, they were born in the melting pot cultural melting pot year of 1968 they were formed by ostensibly classically trained musicians that have been inspired by the rock music of the velvet underground and i say rock music because the velvet underground weren't totally uh, rock rock either with john cale being an avant-garde sort of musician himself the music was not dissed by punks and uh foresaw the sampling and the sort of patching together that we have in modern music. They uh improvised their music. They they own they had the they had the benefit of owning their own studio, which obviously it can be very good for you if you're just going to play and play and play, which they did do. And then they took the tapes and their their bass player UK would then cut up the tape, which was a manual process in those days, and uh, stick it into coherent forms, which would take the form of songs. You know, which then they would or would not play in subsequent concerts. They they didn't for, follow the blueprints of American and British rock music. In a sense, they were part of the post-war renaissance of German culture. There were a lot of rock bands that did follow that kind of blueprint and uh, they're not remembered today. <laughs> a lot
2: of them aren't anyway, maybe the Scorpions. So I wouldn't say is it's a best can album, but what's a good entry point for the people coming to them
0: fresh? Uh, well, uh, the album I always play people, David, is uh, Future Days from 1973. Yep. It has their uh, legendary Japanese singer. It was the last released album with him on, uh, Dama Suzuki. Hmm. To me, it's an avant-garde album, which is totally weird for anybody that used used a musical form, uh, you know, a, a sort of accepted musical form. But at the same time, it's lovely to listen to. It's got a watery sort of feel. It's got Neptune's Trident on the cover, covers blue, it's got an I Ching symbol that if you look up the I Ching it's all to do with a similar kind of thing
2: it's got a vibe Yep. and their, um, their back catalogue it's easily accessible uh, last week we discussed early craft work which has been withdrawn but uh, you can easily get out of most can recordings
0: yeah so you're saying there are the f- certain oddball ones like their first ever jam station camera kind of as a cassette called Prehistoric Future which there no, again, I'm sure if you went on YouTube or something, it's probably there. You yeah, know.
2: I've got back into Cannes in the past few months and I uh, can uh, say that there's a comprehensive amount of uh, material there, some nicely curated playlists as well. Uh, my recommendation this week is the Icelandic band Sigur and their fourth album, Dak. Now, I mean, Sigur I mean, they're super obvious, aren't they, really? commercial success successful, music's being used a lot in film and TV, Uh, but if you're new to them, you haven't got uh, around to listening, Tack is where to start. It shows how the band had matured musically, creating compositionally very dense and satisfying music. Uh, Sigur Rós had been called post-rock or even shoegaze, uh, Mm -hmm. but I think a better description is um, horizon-gaze. To me, their music summons up huge, great landscapes. Uh, some beautiful, some intimidating, some quite melancholic. Um, I'd recommend their fourth album over the previous three because it's it's a good introduction to their oeuvre. It's well rounded, and secondly, it features Hoppy. And you had stumble on this one. But I've got to keep recording. <laughs> oh, yeah. It features Hoppy Polla, which is instant recognisable. And Deeply Moving, it's a track as monumental as Arcade Fire's Wake Up. It's, it's brilliant. Very briefly, I'd also give a honourable mention to Poppy Holler by Chicane. Um, that's a trance track, and if it doesn't make you happy, nothing ever, ever will. The language is rather picturesque, but the meaning is perfect. You flatter yourself. Each week, we explore a question that challenges or intrigues. This week, were the Beatles a folk band? Kevin, your thoughts on this? Ooh. Um, in later
1: years, sort of, yes, I, I believe that they were, um, especially from 1966 onwards. Um, when you think about it, they, they were kind of at the tail end of the second folk revival, which lasted from 1945 to 1969. Uh, The the first, uh, for anyone interested, the first uh, folk revival was 1890 to 1920. So folk uh, in a contemporary sense rather than a traditional sense, I'd say.
0: Well, you've wondered what folk music is, or you know, um, and that's always intrigued me since I was a teenager, you know, I mean, when I used to go to folk clubs and things, and I think, is mm. this really folk music, or is it? And have things become a genre. It's mm. it's like um, you could say somebody that had lots of blues in their music was a folk singer. Yes, but yeah. then some, but then blues has become such a fixed genre itself. Mm. So then it has to be something really back porch, like Leadbelly or something to to tick some people's folk box yes you know yes. Uh, and then there was that 60s idea that pop music I mean, it was a, a challenge actually i think that folk music was a modern folk pop music was a modern folk music mm. but i think when we're talking about beatles we're talking about certain salient things um you know like uh well, I know they did do a one folk song, even though it was a, kind of a bit of a kind of throwaway, was that Maggie May, which is like a Liverpool yeah, yeah. sort of um, rather dirty ditty kind of sailors song,
1: mm, which mm, is on Let It Be. Which is very good, actually. It's, mm. it, it's, it's, it's good fun.
0: Yeah. When you hear the full version, yeah. you know, I mean, on the original Let It Be album, you only have a bit of a snippet of it. It's mm. Even better yeah, when you hear yeah. it all. When you hear it all. Like yeah. in the new... Um, Peter Jackson thing, is it called Get Back? Get Back. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm. I always forget what these things are called because of bootlegs of all that with Mm. similar names and stuff. Mm. And if you go right back, they came out of a city which was a melting pot of music where, you know, the race records are coming over, brought by sailors, Island was just across the way, you know, families rather than playing Edwardian songs on pianos might be playing, well, I'm mm. sure they did that as well, but they might be playing uh, Irish music and they might be playing banjos and mm. mandolins and, mm. and things like that. I think there was some of that in the McCartney household.
1: Yes, yes, um, yes.
0: But um, I think you've got things to say, if I'm not wrong, about the form of Beatles songs which f- points towards folk music or a definition yeah. of folk music.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, one definition of folk music in in a way, if you go right back to the revolver album from nineteen sixty six um george harrison's tax man i mean it's a, it's a, it's just a complete protest song mm. which you know it goes down well with the you know the folk music you know in, in, you know as as in the genre itself um but then as as they get older they seem to start going and going sort of back in time, sort of reminiscing about their childhoods and things. You mean when they become solo artists? No, no. Um we're talking stuff like Penny Lane, which was just up the road from where, well, they, where they lived. So they've got a year older, yeah. Well yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Uh Strawberry Fields Forever. Yeah, they, they have all the attributes of folk music. You mean like place names or place names, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. As a as a kid you
0: wouldn't know that Strawberry Fields was somewhere in Liverpool but uh, as an adult and getting more knowledgeable one does yeah. yeah
1: I mean when I when I was I was only probably eight years old when <coughs> excuse me when um, uh, Penny Lane and Strawberry Fields came out it was a, it was a double A side single mm. um, which was destined really for the Sgt. Pepper album but they were left off
0: yes I think George Martin wished well, at least Strawberry Fields had been on it
2: mm. And what other themes, do you think, in, uh, in Penny Lane, particularly that resonates with me, what are the, the themes about time and place and memory, which mean nothing to modern people, mm. a past which is deep in the past now, mm. but if you were you know, a teenager in the 60s or you were listening like I was in the 70s as I grew up, there was that connection back yeah. to a, not an over-romanticised um, idea of a, a location, but just the warmth and the feeling of where the home was. I mean, the good thing about it, all, all that is that when, when you do
1: go, I mean, where they actually lived wasn't on Penny Lane. It's a bit lower down. Um, but the roundabout there and, you know, the all, all the things that are mentioned in the song are all, still, mm. they're still there. I mean, they preserved them, obviously. Absolutely brilliant to see. But um, they, they've they uh, encapsulated the, the, their whole kind of childhood in... in,
2: in a pop soul, hmm. or yeah. a folk soul. Yeah, I think uh, it's really important to recall that um, there were working class post-war Merseyside, which had been heavily bombed. Exactly. Where uh, I know John came from lower middle class uh, background, you know, yeah. with his auntie and that nice uh, nice semi. Mm. But we were three lads. I mean, they were proper two up, two down. Yes, yeah. Not, yeah. not a penny to rub together, really. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: And I think that's really good about about, about well, four of them really. But sadly, there's only two two of them still alive. But um, they've not forgotten where they came from. It's very very important to them, which which I think is fabulous. And I think that I think that's I don't think these musicians start off to be, to, you know, to be to be put in that category of of a folk musician. But it seems to be that that's where they seem to lead. Oh, no, it's a funny,
0: it's a funny dichotomy, though, because I know that Ringo's done some very sentimental songs, but he's the one that sort of least sort of waxes on lyrical about Liverpool. He was glad to have left.
1: Well, no, um, but, um, in what was it now two thousand and eight? He brought out this 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 album called Liverpool Eight, right? And it actually mentions his his home, where you know his former homes like Madryn Street and Admiral Grove and things like that. But I think I think the lyric goes, um, I, 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 "Liverpool, I left you, but I never let you down," and and I, I that it kind of brought a tear to me. I when when I when I listened to that, I thought, yeah. "Do you know that is really really powerful?" He's he's been living all these years, you know, abroad and everything, but he still hasn't forgotten.
0: No, I I wouldn't have thought he would have forgotten, mm. but he definitely is a bit like J B Priestley in Bradford, didn't he? They thought. God, no. this place is dumb. Let's
2: get no. out. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm off now. Thanks. Goodbye. Yeah. I came back. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: But if, if we take it a bit further, we, you know, we're looking at like the album that the, those two songs were left off, Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band*. A lot of it on there. The, you know, the the actual well, the 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 men the men song Sergeant Peppers*. You know, it's it, it's folk. It's folk music. You've got um Being for the Benefit of Mr. Kite, you know, based on a nineteenth a century circus poster that that John Lennon found. Um it's all stuff that's going back in time and reminiscing about stuff. Uh the the song She's Leaving Home, considered folk.
0: Oh right. The I saw as an Eleanor Rigby reboot on some level.
1: Well, yeah, Eleanor Rigby. there is when you think, another one. Yeah, yeah. Well, when you think about Eleanor Rigby, um, there's there's no no actual Beatle playing on that. No, no, no. Uh, it's it's a string quartet, isn't it? So, no, yeah. You've got, you know, I, I don't know whether you can. Well, it's singing. It's yeah, the singing, but you know, the the um, instruments. Marco wanted the classical. Said
0: what he wanted.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I I I love it. Oh,
0: and I'm sorry to say a reboot, actually. I just think the form is similar in certain ways. Well,
2: um, I've read it's a sequel. You
0: right. can very much see oh, it right. as a continuation. Right, well, that's, 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 that, I can take that. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Uh, yeah. Um, and then we've got uh, when they went to India, haven't we? We've
1: got the Donovan connection as well. Yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: I think they... I think it's think very direct folk thing.
0: Yeah. I, as long as we think Donovan's a folk musician, Yeah. you know.
1: But I, th- I think he, um, I think they both rubbed off on each other. You know the the Beatles and Donovan.
0: Well, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean he's meant to give him John Lennon some, showed him some kind of basic folk guitar pick, mm. uh, as they might call it. That he then translated into Julia.
1: Yes, yes.
0: And then I would say, right at the end, the very last Beatles record before all the, you know, before the. Uh, the anthology and those those two records they made then Mm. um Mm. the ballad of john yoko just the title of it has a when you if you go back to your taxman thing it's got a ring to it it's got got a ring of a kind of folk song title to it yeah
2: yeah yeah i agree yeah and the themes of persecution as well yeah Mm. most definitely
0: Isn't another kind of protest song in a sort of way Mm.
1: So, what about "Let It Be"? Where does "Let It Be" lie?
0: Well, the song itself.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's
0: more like a kind of church type thing. Mm. like the hymnal world, I'd say.
1: Because a lot of people sort of, you know, when they talk about folk music, they talk of they talk about sort of traditional, contemporary, and, and ballads.
0: Yeah, well, there's a, what about um, "Hide Your Love Away" from 1965 on mm. the, on the Help album? Yeah, yeah. You yeah. know, that's uh, well. He, he was very influenced by Dylan. Um, Lennon, when you're yes. trying that, but yeah. it's definitely got its own British sort of thing. It's got a, a bit of a folky vibe to it compared to some of their other songs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd say.
1: Yeah, I agree. I agree.
2: Yeah, there are, there are bands who transcend their origins and they become just a global brand, they're just another product. Um, then and now. Mm. The Beatles are Merseyside. They are, through and through. Yeah, Yeah, they are. Just going going back a little bit to the connection with church and uh, folk and so on. Yeah. um, I have no academic reference to this whatsoever. It's just in my head. But I think, you know, if you went back, say, 200 odd years, where some of the deep roots of folk lie, just before the Industrial Revolution, um, the people who were balladeers, who played in pubs and so on, would most likely play in church as well. Right, yeah. The musicians yeah. you've got in church. Because we, and one thing I do know about is that if you look at church music of the 16th or 17th century, they were frequently not just an organist or somebody on a little sort of keyboard, they had bands. Yes. Bands yeah. played in, yeah. in in churches. Mm-hmm. And those people who could play music, they were down at the pub on Saturday night, but most likely in the pub on, on Sunday lunchtime. True, yeah. If we,
0: if we take this out of this country into the sort of realm of world music and, uh, you know, I was thinking of a friend recently who I was talking to who sings in a Georgian choir which I first thought was the 18th century but he's from, you know, Georgia yeah. in the steps <laughs> uh, yeah, it's how dumb I can well, be sometimes no, no. Uh, but they had Georgian mu- uh, choir, sort of real ones coming over to sing in real ones, <laughs> right. real Georgian choirs to come over sing. Yeah. and sing uh, and, I mean, some of that is religious it's like there's Bulgarian. Choir things, but it, from our perspective, it's seen as a kind of folk sort of, sort of music, world music sort of thing, isn't it? Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. Lots of uh, people in very smart embroidered tunics, looking very ethnic. Yeah, <laughs> without thinking that actually they're singing about the, the um, pains of the Virgin Mary.
0: Yeah, yeah.
2: Sort mm-hmm. of like like uh, Tavener's music, uh, which I'm quite a fan of. Oh, Tavener! It's, yeah. um, it's just a beautiful, beautiful composition to me. Yeah. I don't have to think too much about what he's actually trying to get over.
0: Yeah, no, no, sure. Which takes us back to the Beatles. He was exactly somebody that Ringo signed up for Apple Records. Yes. Oh, I good. used to have the whale. Wow. <laughs> Played it to my dad. Yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. Look, Beatles, <laughs> deal with your music. Listen, <laughs> listen to this. This
2: is your world, father. Yeah, Was that Lord Asprey?
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so looking back on the Beatles, I think, um, it seemed it seemed at one point that most most other musicians were writing songs about love and love lost and things like that. When the Beatles were going in a completely different direction, you know, writing writing songs about you know things that you would never in a million years think that they'd write about. And uh, I think there is definitely folk in there.
0: Well, I really love that early song. There's a place. From the first album. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah.
1: It's a really evocative tune. Yeah. when a great when, song. When I, when, I was a,
0: when I was, you know, 12 or something like that, I mean, I wasn't listening to some of this stuff when it first came hot off the press, because, yeah. you know, I was 10 in 1965 with classically orientated oppressive parents. Mm. Um, but, you know, hearing that song, it, 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 it's lyrics and, mm. you know, it's just, and it's tune. Yeah. Transform, yeah. you know, transported you somewhere.
1: Yeah. So uh, originally, you know, like you've got the Merseybeat scene. Do you see the Beatles as Merseybeat? They, they, well, they may have been in the beginning, but yeah. I, I think they drifted. Well, of course completely. they
0: were. They transcended all these 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 things, and there's just things that are made up by journalists sometimes. I mean, I know that in Liverpool themselves, they were quite into the idea of creating a. Mersey beat, yeah, but um, if you compare them to a lot of the other bands, they very quickly sort of outpaced those bands, yeah. yeah, uh, yeah. And that, um, are we talking about swinging blue jeans where they Jerry were the
1: past, uh, Jerry and the Pacemakers, yeah, Jerry and the Pacemakers,
0: yeah, definitely, and yeah. uh, and the Mersey Beats or the Merseys as they yeah. later became, yeah. Or, and then there was loads of bands that people that never that are never ab- have heard applauded <laughs> yeah. for their rockingness, mm-hmm. like the Big Three or the yeah. uh,
2: Undertakers. Yeah. Whatever <laughs> happened to the Quarrymen? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, I um, I read recently that uh, when they came back, the Beatles came back from Germany. Yeah, local bands were like, "Oh, hang on, this is a game changer. These people have come back. Yeah, yeah. With a different attitude yeah, and different yeah. skills. Yeah,
0: but so they all. had. Yeah, but there was another thing that happened in Germany apart from the... Having to play all that music to that kind of crazed yeah. audience, and mm. um, they met all those German art students, yes. you know that yes. uh, you know had an influence on them, and they obviously had an influence on the art students.
2: And importantly, from a musicianship point of view, they played constantly. They did huge long sets. Yeah, yeah, day after day after day. Yeah. Well, or you know
0: lot of very shorter sets that just lots of them. Lots of them, yes, yeah.
2: yeah. Yeah, they do they do, you know, hours every night.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And of course the scene develops. So with that kind of hyperball of drunken sailors and kind of sex workers and just drunken Germans. <laughs> uh there was these kind of existentialist artist people, you know, they're about twenty years old and They were right for us, like we have today. All these rock bands that you know have a scene round them, you know, and there's a scene. Mm.
2: Yes, and it's the Cold War. You're in a German port city. The East German border is not that far away. You know, all that's feeding into it. Yeah, Mm. Mm. but we seem to have come a long way from folk music. Well, they're
0: still dealing with folk.
2: Yeah, (laughs) the Volk, The... (laughs) the Volk. So, Kevin, when they round off towards the end of the last album, yes, still yeah. folk connections. I'd say so,
1: uh-huh. yeah, yeah. Well, Maggie Mae so. one's on it, that last album, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it is actually, yeah. Um, yeah, I would say so. I said, think, I think there's a lot of influence in there.
0: The two of us,
1: yes, yes.
0: <laughs> yeah. is, am I just saying that because it's got acoustic guitars out front, yeah. you know. <laughs> <laughs> well as i say it's that uh, you know if folk music is a common touchstone then the beatles are definitely a common touchstone mm. and they're not just um, like you were saying david which is true about things becoming beyond the people in them but i think with the peter jackson sort of launching of that film work for them in their last days we saw them as people again and musicians, mm. and they were a great band.
1: Yeah, because the, the Let It Be film, the original film, um, it, it kind of showed them at war with each other. Which yeah, is, yes, yeah, yeah. When when you look at Get Back, you well, think, well, uh, you know, why did he go down that road?
0: Well, you see both, don't you? There. Yeah. I mean, there's bits I recognise out of the Let It Be film that right. are in the Get Back. Mm. You want to play it like this, I'll play it like this. If you like that, yeah, I won't play it at all. Yes, yeah. Yeah, that was yeah.
1: a bit of a moment that one, wasn't it? Yeah.
2: Yeah. So have we um have we come to a conclusion? I think you're firmly in the yes category, Kevin. I am. Yes. Bill.
0: Well I I, I seem to mention it twice this touchstone thing, so I think that's meaning that I do think In some ways, they are a folk band, but probably not in some people's eyes.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think folk music is like jazz. It's angels' fear to to tread, really. It is so hard to define and so passionately defended. Um, I think some people find this um, an outrage. Beatles, folk, but... They become important, of course, in the world of music. Uh, their impact in Europe, America, the Far East is huge. But they are still essentially a Northern English band yep. with extremely deep roots in that culture. Mm. But don't
0: hesitate to call on me anytime you need help. Or. Uh... Maybe
2: just playing board. We call this section, Will There Be Wine and Cheese? Because we always hope for a free buffet. And I think we're going to start this week with Kevin. Yep. Okay. Right, well,
1: I went to see a, a band the other day called The Heavy Heavy. Uh, not to be confused with the, another band called The Heavy. Um, they're a five-piece band. A mixture of uh, psychedelia, blues, acid rock and sunshine pop. Touring America on the back of their EP entitled Life and Life Only. Just six tracks, but they are all incredible. They even managed a spot on Jimmy Kimmel. Uh, They're fronted by Will Turner and Georgie Fuller. Um, I'm sure this band are destined really for for a bright future. They are are fabulous live. Sadly, the turnout, it, it wasn't great, but the appreciative crowd... Made a lot of noise, which which was good. Uh, they tried out some new some new material on us too, which which was which sounded really really promising on first listen. Uh, the EP it's been expanded to eleven songs from six, um, and yeah, they're just they're just getting there. Um, they're in the process of uh, making a new album, uh, the first full album that they will have made, and uh, I highly recommend them. So, Bill,
0: I think you went to a gig. I went to see Martin Simpson. No, that's good. And uh, Martin Simpson is uh, seen as a, you know, a, a virtuoso guitarist and a super nice guy. I'd seen him a lot of times in the eighties and um, and the nineties. You know, well, say a lot of times, maybe up five times. And he used to do a cracking version of Peter Gabriel's "Biko" in those days. And I think a friend of mine used to run a folk club. Uh, near cambridge i think it was and uh he he said in those days which might have been deeper into the 70s it was a luthier and used to make instruments for richard thompson um it was a lovely gig he he you know he's a nice guy um is you know he healthily hates tories he loves wildlife and birds and things, and he which he talks about a lot in his thing and he wrote he some amazing mixed set of things that were quite folky that you know June Tabor might have done or and he did a, a lovely back porch blues slide version of Heartbreak Hotel, mm. which I thought was you know pretty great and um well, you know, I don't want to take up too much time talking about it. I bought his new album well. I say new album, the guy at the merch desk seemed to be kind of squinting at them to try and work out. And so, well, he's got greyer hair and wearing glasses on this one.
1: Um,
0: <laughs> and it was called Home Recordings and it was from 2020, I think. And so it's a lockdown album, really.
2: Album, yeah. You yeah.
0: Know. Did, you I, it, did you get it signed? No, but, I didn't. I thought to him, but there was a big crowd around him and, yeah. you know, uh, I decided not to go for that number that day.
2: Well, then thanks very much.
0: It's as if he were reaching for something, something specific. I don't understand it. there will be masterpieces.
2: In this section of our podcast, we are going to discuss Italian director and auteur, Michelangelo Antonioni. Bill.
0: Yes, David, Michelangelo Antonioni. In my opinion, one of the great directors of the 20th century. Though Mark Cousins, in his admirable book, The History of Film, says that he won't discuss Antonioni very much in his in his book because he didn't advance the medium.
1: I think now, a little harsh, that, don't you, Bill?
0: I, I think it is a little harsh, and I think by the end of our um, feature we'll, we'll come to a different conclusion. Mm. He had a very, very long career, starting in 1945 and ending in uh, 2004. His first 5 years were taken up with making documentaries starting with the uh, People of the Valley of the Po Valley in 1945. His first feature film came in 1950 with The History of a Love Affair, which even at that stage you could tell was a film made by a, a major talent. Though the game changer is Led Ventura in 1960 though it was heralded by a few films in the 50s, not least El Quirido in 1957. Now, L'Adventura is part of a trilogy of films, uh, followed by La in 1961, and L'Eclipse in 1962, and The Red Desert in 1964. Now, you could think, mm, there's four films there. Uh,
2: yeah, and it is worth pointing out to uh, to listeners that this is not a trilogy or a quadrilogy in the traditional sense of of following characters and of, of place. It's a trilogy and an extra film of ideas. A few of those ideas are going to come on to soon, aren't you, Bill?
0: Yes. Well, before I will come on to those ideas, I'll just say that all those films that I've just mentioned, those four films, all have Monica Vitti in... Um, which bring in our first thing. Uh, well, like all great artists, Antonioni had, some people would say, obsessions. He had um, preoccupations and little motifs that went through his whole career, as opposed to, what I'd say, a Hollywood journeyman director who could be an artist but was given a project by studio and then his ne- next project might be totally different and there might be... Not identifiably the same director, whereas Antonioni, you definitely saw these things. And one of the things, as we oh. just said, a, a woman was the central character in those four films. Was a woman centric, and a, uh, a sort of feminist angle to his films. They also uh, he, he had an outsider type element in his films. The Monica Vitti character in L'avventura is an outsider. She she's friends with a socialite who uh, has a bunch of socialite friends, and they go off on a, a little yachting expedition amongst the uh, the Italian islands. And then you have the another one of his motifs, if you like, and it's that it's like loss because the friend disappears when they land on a. An, Uninhabited island, and this idea can be seen in his most famous film, or the one that made the biggest box office later in 1966, Blow Up. But uh, we'll go back to the trilogy. I think you've recently watched the trilogy, haven't you, Kevin?
1: I have. Yeah, absolutely brilliant. Um, what I did find interesting was um, the, the casting. Really, cause the, the the guy that plays the socialite, uh, Gabriel uh, Fazetti. Um, I'd never seen him in another film other than On a to Secret Service. He, play, he played Tracy's dad in the the James Bond film, and I'd, I'd never. I thought to myself, Will I ever see this guy in anything ever again? And and he ter- he turns up in this.
0: Well, I think I think uh, Kevin, you find that it's true of um, of say big time American British films, especially in the sixties, hmm. that they were they were peopled with great european actors but yeah they were in small parts mm. i mean one of the famous ones uh, is uh, fernando rey who was in lots of bunuel films yes. and he's in similar films to what you're talking about mm. isn't mm. he? yeah just in bit parts i've even yeah. seen mm. michelle Pickley, you know in crime capers and mm. things like that
1: the great character actors that's that's the category i put them in yes yeah yeah, yeah, yeah but yeah. He, he was he had a lot of star quality in uh, in in la ventura
0: I mean, in a way, um, Monica Vitti isn't the central character in L'Eclipse because it has the great Jean Moreau and the great sort of Marcello Mastroianni uh, in it. who so obviously, we know her out of Jules and Jim and uh, and uh, *La Dolce Vita*. Mm. But she plays a very key role, very intelligent, sort of in, sort of intellectually, artistically endowed daughter. Who hasn't got much to do of the, of the um, entrepreneur in the
1: film? Mm.
0: And of course, music is another thing.
1: Yeah, what I did notice about, the, the, especially the first three, the others, the others too, but heavily jazz. Yeah, yeah. You yes. know, and superb, superb playing.
2: Uh, is it true that uh, Herbie Hancock features on the later soundtrack?
0: Yes, yes, he does. He he yeah. features on um, bloat soundtrack.
2: Oh, that's that's more. 60s pop as well, isn't it? We uh, come on to that later on. Yeah. Yeah, it is
1: still jazz, isn't
2: it? Oh, he plays jazz. Yes. Yeah, I was thinking we blow up the Herbie Hancock input is very jazz. Yes, mm. but then there's also uh, we'll come on to this later on, won't we? Um, some quite well-known British, yes, mainstream yes. pop, of course, okay.
0: the or even the innovatory rock, yeah, yeah. Um, the Adverts. Yeah, <laughs> but, but if we go back to Lenotta, the the actual titles of, of the film have some kind of weird sort of music, concrete sort of like... Mm. sort of experimentalist sort of music. I'd also like to point out another thing, is that at the, with the titles, the camera follows a, a lift up the side of a building, which is obviously a very new building, you know, sort of buildings mm. that we got very used to that in 1961 would have been very different. I, I think when we're talking about some of these films from that era, they could be talking about Goddard, uh, Alphaville, um Is that a lot of these buildings were very new then, so they would seem pretty outstanding to to the audience. He
2: was quite interested in architecture, uh, new architecture, but also um, some of the early films, the backdrops of these great huge fascist uh, fascist buildings from the 30s, aren't they? So he used architecture a lot as a. And
0: and, and the classical stuff, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: loved all that sort of old decaying villas and so on. Yeah,
0: yeah, and rooftops. Mm. I mean, as I say, there's things that repeat themselves in subtle ways.
2: Yeah, does this lead us on to his cinematography?
0: Well, it does, yeah. Yes, his camera moves. You know, and people joke with me, that my friends, and they say, oh, that's an Antonioni move. And it's true, there are some. Uh, he likes filming people from above. Mm. So I think I do remember a thing in La Lenotta where Jean Moreau sees masteroni on Masteroni getting more friendly with uh viti mm. and and it's seen from above in a in, in a in an angle because it's obviously one of these sprawling villas with mm. little walkways and mm. all that sort of thing
2: so quite voyeuristic a lot of shots yeah right? they so are, are because through doorways and, and down yes and well
0: there is that thing where you have a you see the inside of a room you're quite correct david and and you see a doorway and the action is happening in a doorway. Mm. And, uh, and and this has influenced people like Mike Lee, You can mm. see that in his films. And also we could bring up another one of his sort of uh, preoccupations, which is ecology. When I mentioned mm. that his first film was The People of the Po Valley, I think that he was very, very upset to see how the modern world was polluting watercourses and places. I think he might Mm. have been born around there, actually. And Mm. he was seeing, he was very upset. And in that uh, fourth film of the trilogy, quadrilogy, (laughs) um, Red Desert, Mm. there's a bit where there's a watercourse and the CEO of this um, very surreal... Industrial complex in it is mm. bemoaning the fact that he used to fish with his father in this watercourse, and you mm. see oil slicks sort of floating on the top of it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Gavin, uh, is there anything else you'd like to say about that trilogy
1: or that quadrilogy of <laughs> films? Yeah, I'd like to go back to Monica Vitti. Um, I actually thought that she's she's playing a different part in in each film. None none of them follow on in in that way. Um, But she's so compelling and complex in in, in all those films. There's there's just something about The presence that she has is is incredible.
2: Yeah, because, uh, I mean, academics have written about this, that um, he's one of the first directors who is very pro-women, very gender-aware. His characters have all got internal narrative and drive. uh, They're all... Facing things and tackling life, and quite frequently, the main male characters seem oblivious of this, they seem to be clueless, really.
0: Well, yeah, they come like a bunch of saps of you know, a lot of the times. If we go back to Adventura, she's definitely the aware character, Mm. and you know, there's a socialite seem like a bunch of airheads, and Mm. I'm I'm very self obsessed, yeah. And I make I can mix in. My thing about the camera angles and this self-obsession very early in the film, she's driving with a socialite friend who's very, very spoilt and mm. sort of self-obsessed and they go and visit her older boyfriend and she just nips upstairs and leaves Monica sort of waiting for him. She thinks she's going to come back in a minute and then she starts making love with her boyfriend mm. and mm. you see one of those great shots, one of the great Antonioni shots from from the window mm. of Monica just sort of like wandering aimlessly around and then you yeah. see the shot there looking up at the window and mm. him closing mm. the shutters and The things. shutters are closed, yeah. Mm. And, um, oh yes, the tape recording. Ah, yes. that's, that's a, yes. a wonderful yeah. Yeah.
1: thing. It is, it's a brilliant And awesome. it, that's
0: in uh, in Lenotto, mm. where mm. Monica Vitti, you could say she wasn't the central character, but as you say kevin she's a very strong character and she's she that, she makes the film actually well she's a very intelligent oh, mm. i wouldn't totally agree with that yeah. but i we for could, the amount of, for the amount of time we, that we, she's in we, it. we could discuss that mm. yeah. at another period yeah. Yeah. on the longer mm. extra podcast <laughs> um i'd wonder i'd love to discuss that well there's the bit where she plays Masteroni, uh a tape machine a tape recording of poems she's just written mm. and then he says to her oh can i hear that again and she goes, Oh no, I've just rubbed it off. Well, yeah. you hear the noise of it being rubbed off. Yeah,
1: yeah.
0: Uh, and in a way, it sort of reflects something ephemeral about their life. And she's really intelligent, but she's got nothing to do. Mm. She's the kind of daughter, the intelligent daughter of this entrepreneur, mm. where she's got everything and she's like bored.
2: So is this erasing of a tape, is it a political or artistic statement? It's not on a whim just because she's a bit... No,
1: I think, I think, I think she did being... it all the time. I think mm. she's being mean.
0: <laughs> oh, I, I, I got the feeling that that's what she did. Do you think? She, she wrote yeah. these brilliant poems on the mm. tape machine and then immediately you know, played them once and then wiped them off. Mm. That's what she did.
2: Yeah, but is that then more to do with a lack of confidence, uh, self-belief?
0: I think she, I think she was w- w- wandering in an existentialist kind of fog.
2: Well, this you know, is another theme of it, isn't it? It's, it's a lot of these bourgeois middle-class people who have access to all the um, facilities of life, you know, great resources, but they're just all little bit lost, aren't they? They're all a bit...
0: And there, David, you're bringing in another um, factor which we haven't brought up, is that he, Antonioni was very concerned about vacuous bourgeois... Mm. lifestyle which you know in the party in lenozzo it's very vacuous oh. you know it rains and you know they're all sort of freaked out and then they all jump into swimming pools mm. and things and they, mm. they, they're they like bored people looking for something to do exactly. socialites going around on their their boat trip in and, an mm. and i mean mm. there's that bit in the in when they're on the island where the woman disappears, where Monica's friend disappears, mm. where well, somebody picks up a bit of ancient pottery,
1: yeah, and yeah. then it's no,
0: mm. oh, yes, it's three thousand years old, and then somehow it just gets tossed aside and <laughs> smashes, you mm. know.
2: Uh, we've so, all done that, you know,
0: you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, so there's this, this lack of kind of any kind of consciousness about anything, mm. you know, or okay. care mm. or depth. No, yeah. yeah, mm. that's right. Mm. And, I mean, that is kind of furthered in um, Red Desert to a certain extent, isn't mm. it?
1: Mm. Yes.
0: You know, which I, I think was his first colour film.
1: Well, te- technically that's not true, Bill. Um, his first colour film came in 1959. Um, it was a film that he was brought into. He, he shot the interiors uh, when the original director, Guido Brignone, f- uh, fell ill. Um, so he he stepped in, he didn't really want to. He didn't didn't direct the actors at all. He just he just took the money. I think really.
0: You know, that reminds me of another great director you really like um, Stanley Kubrick. He didn't wasn't pegged to do uh, Spartacus to start that's with right. either. Man. Yeah, that's right. You know, it's yeah. it's interesting this sort of thing where people mm. are
2: brought in. Yeah. yeah, but with Spartacus, of course, he took that on and made it his own. Yes, yeah. you're right there. Yeah, I think yeah, yeah. with this film. Um, What's it called?
1: It's called sheep well this it's one of those things with three titles again. Oh good. Um Sheba and the Gladiator, um aka Sign of the Gladiator, aka Sign of Rome, and it was made in nineteen fifty nine. Um there was there was actually no gladiator in the film, um so they actually <laughs> they, they redubbed it. Um, so that they could put one in, which is a bit strange, really, but there you go. Um, they also cut 18 minutes out, out of the film as well. So. Is that the Americans
0: that re yeah. sort of re-cut it? Did yeah. they actually put some film of a, of a gladiator in, you know, or was it just somebody, no, no. somebody who was referred, re- referred to as a gladiator? just referred to as a gladiator. It's a
1: general, really, It's is referred to as a gladiator. It's a guy with a sword. Yeah, like, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, it's a good film, actually. Um, Anita is in it, you know, from La Dolce Vita. She, she's in it. Yeah. Um, there's also uh, Mario Bava, he's the cinematographer. Now, Mario Bava, um has been dubbed as the master of the macabre. Um, and also, whatever happened to this guy, Sergio Leone? Wow. He helped write the screenplay. Wow. So yeah. Yeah, um, and it did quite well at the box office as well.
0: We should move on to the famous English language films, shouldn't we? Whoa. Is it Carlo Ponte? Carlo Ponte productions. G- gave, yeah. Gave him yeah. A, a sort of like a contract to do three yeah. English language films, which he...
1: Another trilogy.
0: Took a lot of time, <laughs> actually. There's, yeah. th- there's years yeah. in between them. Yeah, there's a lot of years in between. And the first one being about swinging London, mm. being the epicentre of hipness and sort of everything.
1: I mean, it's a, it's a classic film. I it, absolutely adore it, I really do. It's so classic, mm. Kevin. Yeah
0: that one of my good friends uh, found me a book in a charity shop written in 1971 about it, five years in, after it. right? And yeah. it's a, a, quite a thick paperback, just about blow up.
2: Mm. Mm. And uh, what year mm. was that released?
0: 1966.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And yeah. uh, I think it was released in 67 here, but it's 66 in yeah. 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 Uh, but again, we've, we've got this casting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. A, a, a very young David Hemmings. Yeah, well, this made him famous. Yeah, also Vanessa Redgrave. Sarah Miles, Jane Birkin in one of her very early films, maybe a first. And also we've got Pete, Peter Balls, of all people.
0: The guy with sort of three joints, marijuana cigarettes in his mouth in the party scene. Yeah, uh, yeah. The yeah. Chelsea yes. party scene yes. at the yes. end. Yes, Yeah, I, I, I almost feel, I've watched Blow Up multiple times. I can almost kind of write down the screenplay, you mm. know. it's uh, It's interesting the way... That characters appear in a very strong way and then never appear again. Sarah mm. Miles appears twice, um, Vanessa Redgrave mm. appears twice. Mm. If we went back to this colour thing, we, we, we start seeing another artistic preoccupation of Antonioni. He didn't just film in colour, he decided how things would look, you know, that he'd paint buildings yeah, colours he very, wanted. Very, very garish.
1: Uh, yeah, yeah. I as mean,. Well
0: when um the David Hemmings character who plays the uh, the fashion photographer, outsider fashion of photographer in blow up, mm. is driving with his open top Rolls Royce know, to it? his streets of <laughs> streets of London yeah. with his radio phone. Um Yeah, that was a bit weird, wasn't it? <laughs> well then that's time so yeah. it's like I was saying about the buildings, Kevin. Mm. You know, we now got mobiles, and nobody thinks about you know mm. seeing somebody on the phone in a car in yeah. 1966 was pretty mind blowing. Mm. Um, he painted terrace houses mm. and and things mm. like that. You know, blue and red
2: and so obviously this is a film about about London in the sixties, and so music is a a key That's part. Right? Yes. Yeah.
0: yeah. Yeah. With a Herbie sung Herbie Hancock soundtrack. But, more famously, Club Scene got together with the Yardbirds The Yardbirds, yeah.
1: Singing Stroll On? Yes,
0: but uh, it wasn't originally, it it got renamed Stroll On because it was The the Train Kept Coming. That's right. And it was a a special sort of reboot for Mm. that Mm. because I think The Train Kept Coming was written by sort of old black guys from the States, you Mm. know. Mm. Uh, whereas Stroll On is
2: written by the Yardbirds. Mm. (laughs) But were the Yardbirds even supposed to be in it?
0: No, well, this is another thing I'm going to uh, speak about. Um, Another thing about Antonioni, which Mm. some people think was a fault, is that he would decide to have some music and then change his mind. Mm. Mm. And uh, on the re-release CD of the Blow Up soundtrack, you have two tracks by... The group that became Tomorrow, a famous mm. psych band of nineteen sixty-seven, which had Steve Howe in it and mm. a Twink mm. of later Pink Fairies, and they were called the In Crowd at the time. And uh, they were acetates right. that Steve Howe found in his loft <laughs> that he was going to use, but obviously yeah. the Yardbirds came up. Maybe the Yardbirds mm. were more famous, obviously yeah. in a yeah. sense. Uh, and I think the, the the I think the club scene is very very innovatory i've seen that repeated i've mm. seen I, I feel personally that the vim vendors re, sort of repeats that in wings of desire and his nick cave rock mm. club scene mm. Mm. where the camera sort of pans along the people and mm. and in blow up you're just seeing a year of of melting pot year and everybody looks Mm. wild and individualistic Mm. Mm. it's a bit like the difference between monterey pop and woodstock Mm. you know woods in in monterey pop no styles aren't set in stone Mm. you know whereas woodstock everybody's more stock sort of hippie look or whatever Mm. i find that quite interesting if we're thinking about soundtracks of course there's a lot of great music in Zabisky Point. His second, uh, fabulous, second yeah. English language film mm. from uh, six years later. You know, 1970. Yeah, uh, you know, it's, uh, obviously Carlo Ponti had a little bit of weight on his hands. Yes.
2: For younger listeners who do maths, uh, it's not six years between 66 and 70. <laughs> <laughs> right. Just worth pointing out.
0: Oh yeah. Oh God. <laughs> anyway, he got Pink Floyd to do a whole soundtrack for that film mm, that he mm. then didn't use. He used three tracks, yeah, which are great tracks. Mm. A, a reboot of, of Careful, that's Eugene, of mm. course. And then the music thing goes on, of course. You know, nineteen eighty-two's film uh, identification of a woman has John Fox. He was always sort of getting the most modern, cutting-edge music into his films. I exactly, feel exactly. I feel, exactly. Yeah, yes,
1: definitely. I mean, just just going back to um, uh, Zabriskie Point again, Pink Floyd, um, The Grateful Dead, The Rolling Stones, and at the end, a, a beautiful song uh, by Roy Orbison, singing So Young. Oh, yes. Um, love thing from, from uh, Zabriskie Point. I mean, the thing is with Zabriskie Point. Did you know that it was actually once voted one of the worst films ever made?
0: no but i knew it had been panned yeah very very
1: very much so i mean it's obviously a cult classic these days i mean it's it's
0: a funny kind of thing you know that i've even heard that about blow up you know Mm. what does this middle-aged italian know about our scene you know and this sort of thing
1: yeah i mean
0: you know apart from the fact he spent a year in london before blow up you Mm. know and Mm. things like that but he was a great artist
1: yeah you know, just
0: putting it through his lens.
1: Yes, exactly. You know. His vision. Yeah, 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 exactly. I mean, cinematography-wise, um, Zabriskie Point looks absolutely fabulous.
0: Well, I, funnily enough, uh, something I haven't mentioned is that I've always felt Antonioni films. If you take one frame out of it, it's a wonderfully composed,
1: sort of painterly, exactly. yeah, yeah, sort of picture. You know, yeah. it's all balanced exactly. You know. Yeah. Which is what Stanley Kubrick's famous for as well. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. It's like they're like paintings out there that you can just Yeah.
0: Yeah. So if you have one sort of shot that you know, it's in a book mm. it always looks interesting, mm. you know, yeah. and, and yeah. well balanced.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's wonderful. So they have it it's a brisky point. But then comes, in my view, Bill, the masterpiece, The Passenger.
0: But which was a forgotten film for a long time. Yeah. I mean, I mean, if, if Sebrisky Point was put down, they, mm.
1: the passenger wasn't even talked about. No, not really, no. But again, another, another stellar cast. Yes, yeah, so yeah, of course. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. It don't get any bigger than Jack Nicholson.
0: Well, it at the, at the top of his kind of coolness, mm. Mm. if I may
1: put it yeah. like that. But, I mean, obviously you've also got Maria Schneider from um, Last yeah, Time well, in Paris.
0: Well, yes, which, you know... She sadly felt destroyed her career, so she had another shot at doing something really good. And mm. I thought she performed well in that film.
1: She did, she did, she really, really did. I, I, I loved her in it. Um, Ian Hendry as well, a, a great British star, yes, yes, yeah, fabulous. Jenny Runnaker, yes, yes, another great shoot. She played uh Jack Nicholson's wife, yes. and Stephen Burkhoff, not in it for long.
2: I'm not giving any um. Lot of spoilers away. I mean, the basic premise is um, Jack Nicholson takes on someone else's life.
1: Yes, yeah. I Identity. mean, he he, he he looks kind of like this guy anyway, so he he, he takes over his life, which is strange, really, because um, when when you think that he's like a a, a documentary filmmaker, is Jack? Well, Nicholson, it, but
0: he's isn't? an action he's an action reporter in mm. in a way. And well, in fact, you have what Hitchcock calls a MacGuffin, don't you? Where mm. He's gone to North Africa to see some inc- sort of terrorist or rebel encampment in the mm. mountains or something, and mm. you know he goes out there after meeting this uh, other gentleman, yeah. the Englishman in the in the North African hotel. Mm. Where, <laughs> yeah. You know yeah. everything kind of works in a haphazard sort of way, mm. and, and you know they befriend each other in a sort of very sort of probably a surface sort of way yeah, yeah and then of course when he comes back from this uh, useless enterprise in the hills mm. he finds the guy's dead
1: i mean the cinematography again with with um the passenger luciano tavoli you might, might have heard of him but if you've ever seen dario argento's suspiria
0: no i haven't actually have i i need to see that yeah even though I don't go for those kind of films, but I need
1: to see that. Yeah, you do, because just, just the cinematography. I've seen the remake
0: it. and I've been told that I should oh, see the original. I didn't go there, Bill. No, I, I'm sure as, as a connoisseur of that kind of film, mm. of that Italian, is it? Mm. Yellow, Yellow, Gallo, yeah, Gallo, Gallo, yeah, Gallo yeah, films, yeah, yeah. Mm. that you would sort of not be happy about some remake. No. No, No.
1: there's no point making a masterpiece. No, 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 no. When when it's already a masterpiece, what's the point?
0: No, that's right. That Mm. could be a theme for a a further programme, couldn't it? Exactly. You Mm. know, there's too much of it goes on.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: So, well, uh, I think wrapping it up, I'll go back to where I started. Mark Cousins and his statement about Antonioni not progressing the medium of film. Mm. Well, I'd say and I don't know if you agree, Kevin and Dave, that even if he didn't progress the medium, he certainly used the medium to progress his art. Oh, totally. You yeah. know. Yeah. Totally. He was a great artist. Mm-hmm.
2: And mm. I think the, the key is how he influenced other people.
0: Yes, that's right, yes.
2: Um, yeah. You know, cinema would be different if he had not existed.
0: Mm. Yes, and Yes, that's true. Yep. Yeah, so it's a very moot thing about progressing mediums and what change i mean you can have these very physical things in mediums like a stop camera or close up mm. and then you have things about where you put the camera and how mm. you film people and how you film a a room
2: you know
1: mm. yeah yeah everything
2: yep it all works right, thanks very much music singing gibberish we call this section i haven't heard of that either where we recommend something that's um, a little bit obscure, Bill, what do you got for us? Well, I've
0: got a an artist called Bruce Bruce Lacey, uh, who was born in 1927 and lived till 2016. And I first heard of him in a uh, Fairport Convention song on their very on their second album, which, when they were less folky, and it was written by written by Richard Thompson, called Mister Lacey he went oh mr lacey let me touch your fabulous machine let me pull the handles it's the best thing i have ever seen and then uh, a friend of mine did me a ken russell documentary from the early 60s all seen... oh, right thank yeah. you thank you kevin yeah. um and it was about the man himself with all these machines living in a bohemian house with his wife children and menagerie uh, and then lo and behold even though you might be at the other side of the world, where we are based is in the fair city of Leeds, Yorkshire, and uh, I found in our city art gallery two pieces by Bruce Lacey. One, a kinetic sculpture called Old Moneybags from 1964, Uh, mixed media made with found objects. Being Leeds, it doesn't seem to work. I think, you know, these things, kinetic sculptures, are meant to... You know, you flick a switch, you put a penny in, and things happen. The other thing is more like, uh, well, I don't know if you'd call it more conventional. It's called Love, love Organism, and it's from uh, between circa nineteen eighty four and eighty five on acrylic on the Hessian. So there we
2: are. Yeah, I've um, I've seen that piece. The last piece It's very very good. Right, I had all thoughts of depth to it and meaning. Just yeah. looking at the um, obituary from The Guardian, just a very brief summary of it, described him as an oddball comedian, actor, painter, sculpture, bricolage inventor of robots, a post-hippie shaman.
0: Well, I've certainly... Uh, uh, well, friends of mine have certainly seen him at festivals, but he's he's kind of pre-hippie, really. Mm. So, Kevin, uh, uh, what are you going to delight us with?
1: Uh, We're we'll going to the world of film. Um... A lot of people may know the 1996 film Sling Blade uh, starring Billy Bob Thornton, but not a lot of people know that this actually started out as a short um, under the title Some Folks Call It A Sling Blade, made in 1994. It was only 25 minutes long. Uh, It tells the story of Carl Childers, played by Billy Bob, um, a man who is about to be... Released from an institution after serving 25 years for the murder of his mother and her lover. On his final day, he is visited by a newspaper reporter played by Molly Ringwald, and he tells her his story. In Carl Childers, Billy Bell Thornton has created one of the most compelling characters to be brought to the big screen. We see only a glimpse of him in the short, but he's really fleshed out a great effect in the feature which landed Thornton with a well-deserved Best Adapted Screenplay Oscar and a Best Actor nomination. He lost out to Jeffrey Rush for Shine which was the Best Picture of 1997. Other films um, during that period were The English Patient which won Fargo, Jerry Maguire, Secrets and Lies. I'd recommend watching both these films. the 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 shot really sets up uh, Sling Blade as as a as, as a main feature. Um, for extra fans, there's a great piece of footage that shows Billy Bob Thornton suddenly transforming into Kyle Childers, which has has to be seen to be believed. So yeah, go out and see it. Uh, Kevin, who um,
0: directed these films?
1: Uh, yes, Bill uh, Billy Bob Thornton directed the feature. And the short was directed by George Hickenlooper.
0: All right. that's one of those names. Yeah, Dave, it to you, sir.
2: Radio. Well, I've got an album to recommend. It's River Tales uh, by Martin Tack. I think that's how you pronounce his name. It's a instrumental album uh, from 2018. It's categorised as jazz, but it really easily fits into the more uh, neoclassical genre. It has strong minimalist and modular influences. Um, Michael Nyman's in there as a sort of you know, background um, influence. It's a concept album. It's imagining a journey down the Danube. Uh, we've heard that before somewhere. Uh, but it's, it's quite beautiful. It's nice, relaxing, you know, um, well thought out. The opening track is called The Source and it's like waiting for sunrise at 4am on a clear, beautiful summer's morning. It's beautiful. It's, it's beautiful. It's, um, it's fairly obscure, you know, it's European classical jazz, but, but it's also easy to find. You can stream it on Spotify and YouTube Music. Sounds good to start, Dave. Hmm. Well, that seems to be all. Well, until we meet again.
0: Take care of
2: yourself. for listening to this episode of 5282 which is a out of left field production you can follow us on x at OOLF Presents 5282 and OOLF Presents 5282 on Facebook and that's for numbers 5, 2, 8 and 2 The producer was Kevin Petch Engineering and Editing was by David Benn William Asbury was on Rivenpole. 522 is part of the Aircast family.